0: Hello there. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general.
1: Yes. And you can find or follow us on social media, our Instagram and Facebook um, are both at From Skirts to Scrubs. And then we also have a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And then you can also check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more. And that is from skirts to Yeah.
0: And you can also subscribe to us and leave us a rating and review and Apple podcast is just the best place for the rating and review, but you can subscribe at any app you want.
1: Yeah, it is. And we're back. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. This is my last episode of the season. That's crazy. I know. It's so sad. I know. I'm sad.
0: This I'm lesson I'll be sad. learning from you in a couple months.
1: Don't worry. I'll spew some hot knowledge for you when I'm on the wards. Be like, oh. hey, learn this. <laughs> Finger learn <guns>. these things. <laughs> yeah. But we do have a very action-packed episode today because we are exploring the history of forced sterilization, particularly hmm. in the United States. I know that we usually try not to take a solely Western approach to our histories, usually, but because the U.S. has honestly a shamefully extensive history of forced sterilization, we're focusing on that the most in this episode. Makes sense. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> I know. But Char, why don't you tell me what you know about forced sterilization, what it is, the history, what's going on today, like honestly anything.
0: Um, okay. So what it is for sterilization would be um, like removing a woman's uterus or like giving the medications or whatever that's going to cause them to not be fertile anymore without the woman knowing. So or doing like unnecessary procedures that remove, you know, reproductive parts, stuff like that. And then I know throughout history, it's been done to minority populations, mostly. I know it's been used as a way to, for eugenics to try Mm -hmm. to stop reproduction of certain races. And I know there's been some things today about, I think what was going on at the border down Mm -hmm. south of U.S. um, and just things like that.
1: Yes. Yes to all of that. Good work. Um Thank you. and we're going to know some things. You do know some things. Okay, but we're going to dive into all of those topics and more in this episode. So let's just get started. Let's do it. We are going to start with part 1, which is okay. the basics. So, what even is sterilization? So the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, also known as ACOG, which is like, ACOG is the best. Okay, interesting acronym. That's the organization that like oversees, yeah, all like OB-GYNs in the country. Yeah, ACOG. They define sterilization as, quote, a permanent method of birth control. So, yeah, yeah. So do you know what the main procedure of sterilization would be for folks with testes, Char? Vasectomy? Yeah, vasectomy. So essentially what a vasectomy is, or what it entails, is that the tubes that get sperm from the testes into the semen are tied, cut, and clipped or sealed to keep sperm from getting into the semen. So it's just like, boop, tie, cut, clip, and like now you can't get sperm into your semen. A common misconception is that getting a vasectomy makes you lose your ability to make semen, but that's actually not true because semen is more than just sperm. So like all the other parts Mm -hmm. go into it, but just not the part that can make a baby. Wow. It's almost like we need better sex education to know these things. I know you would think that, right? (laughs) But You know, who needs that? Um, And vasectomies are super, super effective. They're actually more effective than... Sterilization options for biological females and are way less invasive of a procedure. Like they can be done with just a little bit of local anesthetic, and usually major complications are rare. Um, and they're even reversible if you really want to reverse them. But I will say to reverse them is kind of like when you want to remove a tattoo. Like you can do it, but it might not be not fun or clean. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um. But it is like slightly more getting a vasectomy is slightly more effective than the option, the option for biological females. So for people with uteruses, do you know what the main procedure for sterilization is called?
0: I know more of like a colloquial term of like tying your tubes.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know so, what like the actual procedure's name is. Yes, I will tell you. So it's called tubal ligation, but like you said, people often call it getting their tubes tied. And what happens here is that the fallopian tubes, which are the tubes that connect the ovaries and the eggs inside the ovaries to the uterus, and they get closed off or tied to keep the egg from getting to the uterus and ever potentially meeting a sperm and ever potentially becoming a baby. Um hmm. these are pretty effective as a form of sterilization, though slightly less effective than vasectomies. And I will say there is an increased risk of what's called an ectopic pregnancy, which is when the sperm and egg implant somewhere in the uterus or outside the uterus that they're not supposed to, so maybe like a fallopian tube or something. That's the most common site of ectopic pregnancies. And how though? How does the egg get to the sperm? <laughs> the tubes are tied. Because if it if it's not like fully tied or like not completely done, like the egg mm. can get to the sperm. Similarly, what we don't often talk about is that there is actually a small, tiny, tiny space in between. The fallopian tube and the ovary, and so, so fun. It's crazy, but they like, like don't actually. Yeah, it's like the <laughs> the hat and the space is so small between them, but there is a space still, and so sometimes that's how you hear like stories of like weird, crazy like like abdominal pregnancy. Yeah, like eggs implanting really weird places that they're not supposed to. That's very very rare, but mm-hmm. it is a thing. So. Yeah. That's why. And so you can get an ectopic pregnancy through that. And this is very dangerous. dangerous. It's very bad. It's a life threatening condition. It requires surgical interventions. It's just like all bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But these are not the only methods of sterilization, quote unquote sterilization that we're going to be talking about today. People with uteruses can also have their entire uterus removed, which is called a hysterectomy. And this is for sure a permanent option because your uterus is uh, exiting your body.
0: (laughs) It's non-existent in the body.
1: (laughs) I know. But then also a form of sterilization is continuous use of long-acting reversible contraceptives, also known as LARCs, which is basically like an effectively permanent Option for contraception. And these are things like IUDs, hormonal implants, etc. So yeah, and I guess the idea is like if you keep getting an IUD like your whole life, like if you have the copper IUD and you get it every 12 years, you're effectively sterilized. Decreasing, yeah, it's like decreasing
0: your chance of even getting pregnant.
1: Right, exactly. So those are also modes of sterilization to consider. Before we okay. like dive into this episode. Yeah. got it. So then that's what sterilization is. But what is forced sterilization? And then how is this different from coerced sterilization? Hmm. Yeah. Good point. I know. So now that we have a general understanding of how different sterilizations can be done coerced versus forced sterilizations focus more on the fact that the sterilization is not voluntary and i guess my question is between coerced and forced do you know the difference charlotte can you like could you explain the difference if you could guess coerced
0: is more like you should get this because of this benefit like i could see it being like if you get sterilized then we'll give you this much money like that type of like things or you are like convincing someone for your own benefit, not for like, you're not advising someone, you're convincing them for course. And then force is like you said, like it's just non-voluntary. Like the Mm -hmm. woman doesn't know or the person person with uterus doesn't know they're being sterilized. It's not their choice. Like they had no choice in the matter.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's effectively like that, but also we're going to go over so many different um examples today of just of both of those things. So forced sterilization is when a person is sterilized without their knowledge or is not given an opportunity to provide consent to be sterilized. And then coerced sterilization is when financial or other incentives, misinformation, or intimidation tactics are used to compel an individual to undergo the procedure. And then misinformation is a big one here. Um, That's just important to note as we move forward. Mm. Yeah. But both of these are just egregious human rights violations. And yet both of them have and continue to occur in the United States and around the world. And so knowing this and having this as a baseline, it moves us into our next part of our episode, which is part two, the history. Mm Hmm. So, who historically gets forcibly sterilized? You mentioned this before to me, Charlotte. But would you like to reiterate for the fans? Minority
0: women, minority Mm -hmm. people with uteruses.
1: Yes. Yes. Typically, poor, marginalized women. Like Mm -hmm. usually, it's biological women who identify as women. Um, And to properly talk about this topic, we absolutely have to make clear the ties between racial and socio- socioeconomic status and those relationships to forced sterilization because in the US it's not the rich white women that this happens to like you were saying but it's mm-hmm. the poor black latina indigenous women and other women of color that this is happening to it's the women with disabilities and the women who are viewed as criminals who are thought to deserve it who are A problem in society whose kids shouldn't exist because of their actions. It's Mm -hmm. those women. And these ideas about who should be sterilized have a very long history rooted in the efforts of white people controlling the reproductive rights of people of color due to deep seated racism and xenophobia that is ingrained into the fabric of this country. So to understand forced sterilization, We have to talk about the history of the eugenics movement, like you mentioned before. So in the United Hmm. States, more than half the states have had some kind of eugenics law, with some of the recent ones lasting until like the 1970s. Wow.
0: Too recent. Yeah.
1: Very, very recent. But the eugenics movement came about in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And this dude, Sir Francis Galton, coined the term in 1883. And it was all the rage among upper class white people in the United States, which like totally makes sense. The American eugenics movement was fully a byproduct of white supremacy. And it even inspired the Nazis in Germany, like Nazi Uh Germany, literally took the basis of eugenics from the United States. And they were like, oh, great idea. Let's oh, do that. No. I know. Isn't that so one bad. One the worst tragedies in modern history occurred. No, very, very bad. And when a bunch of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe came to the United States, and African Americans from the Southern United States migrated up to the North, white America got super duper anxious and essentially prompted eugenics as a concept to really take off so it was embraced by scientists social activists and politicians as this progressive social movement that could get rid of quote-unquote undesirable characteristics in society and some super super big names actually supported eugenics Do you happen to know anyone before I like, I,
0: I was going to say, I remember learning that the founder of Planned Parenthood, Mm -hmm. I think, support eugenics. Um, I don't remember her name at this moment, but I remember learning that like after we talked about her in episode and I was like, dang, I wish I could have included that in the episode. Um, but that's, that's the only person I know for sure.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah. She is one of them. Her name is Margaret Sanger. Besides her, because she was not the person I was originally thinking of. There's people like mm-hmm. Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt, um, mm. Andrew Carnegie, like the steel, the big like steel guy and Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. Um, and also... Margaret Sanger. So Mm -hmm. as you said, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And yeah, she was big, big into eugenics, um, which is really important to talk about because like you said, in our previous episode on birth control, we weren't aware of this. And so we didn't speak on this topic, but it is really important to talk Mm -hmm. about that in the context of her, her hoping to push eugenics. and also increase access to birth control. And so that's an oversight on our part, but we're sorry. Yes, it is. We but learn from the, our mistakes.
0: We, be, we become better.
1: <laughs> we do. We try. Um, but the ability to sterilize people was granted by the Supreme Court in 1927 with the Buck versus Bell case, which essentially declared a forced sterilization law in Virginia constitutional. So Carrie Buck, well you're gonna tell us why. So yeah, so here's why. So Carrie Buck, (laughs) hold your horses there, lady. I'm (laughs) I'm running this episode. Okay, so Carrie Buck was a poor white woman whose mother had been involuntarily institutionalized for being, quote, feeble-minded and promiscuous. Oh no. I know, I know. But based on genetics, of course, it was assumed that Carrie also inherited these traits. And so they sterilized her. They were like, you got to be sterilized. And this I know. And it was a state sanctioned sterilization of feeble minded people that was actually allowed by this case. And it set a precedent for the legality of sterilization in the United States. Throughout the 20th century. Um, And actually, actually, though, this is crazy. Buck versus Bell has never been overturned. What? Yeah, like it's never officially been overturned in in the law. But I think it's more so been that other laws have been written on top of it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this case would have a profound impact on many, many communities. And some of those effects are still being felt today. So in the 1960s and 70s, the Indian Health Service conducted thousands of forced sterilizations on Native American women. The Indian Health Service, as a concept, was this entity that was a part of the U.S. government that was responsible for providing healthcare to Native peoples. And they would go into these communities with providers that basically these healthcare providers believed historical assumptions about Indigenous peoples, like mm-hmm. how they were morally, mentally, and socially defective in every way. Yeah, really great right. providers. And you might think, oh, but. Why did they have to sterilize them fully? Why was reversible contraception not considered as an option? Yeah.
0: Why Why not family planning? Like, yeah, yeah. Why, why just no, no family?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it was because some of the doctors thought that Native and other minority women didn't have the intelligence to use other kinds of birth control effectively. And that there were way too many minority peoples causing issues in the country. And so between 1970 and 1976 alone, between 25 and 50% of Native American women were sterilized. Wow. Yeah. And this has been an example of, of communities that have been sterilized that today are still feeling the effects of that sterilization because already Native populations have dwindled in this country. And then on top of that, basically 50% of the population was cut down in terms of its reproductive ability. So, wow. How do they do these forced sterilizations? Like, did they like cover it as medical care? Yeah. They, there's like several reasons. I think the native peoples, it, it kind of depends on like niche stories. Like I remember doing reading and I think like at some points it was like, Oh, native these like native girls would go to the hospital going to seek regular just like a general checkup and then suddenly they would be like leaving surgery without their uterus and it's Mm -hmm. like oh what yeah yeah sounds
0: like it's kind of like oh you need to do this procedure now and they're like okay we trust you you're the doctor and then it's just
1: no yeah exactly and i have more examples of like other instances as well but So one of them is in Alabama in the 60s, they allowed voluntary sterilization for adults and then court approved sterilization for the mentally incompetent is what they called it. So if you were deemed mentally incompetent, quote unquote, mentally incompetent, a court Mm -hmm. could approve of you being sterilized. And they also wow. permitted children's surgeries with a parent's approval. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> when Minnie Ralph, mother of 12 year old Minnie Lee and 14 year old Mary Alice Ralph from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, when Minnie, the mom, was asked to sign the X on the line. She unknowingly approved the sterilization of her two daughters because she couldn't read. Wow. And when a lawsuit was filed over this case, the district court found that between 100,000 and 150,000 poor, impoverished people were sterilized annually under federally funded programs, and others were coerced into consenting to sterilization because doctors were threatening them they were threatening to end their welfare benefits yeah and this is a super you do that? well c- yeah like this is a super common occurrence actually that doctors threaten to withhold services or government assistance um unless the patient allowed for sterilization and some would even wow. threaten to keep mothers from being with their kids if they didn't allow for sterilization. So just like it's so it's interesting because one of the forms of coercion that you kind of touched on at the beginning of the episode was saying, oh, I think I could see almost like positive quote unquote, positive benefits where you where you are paying someone to get sterilized but this is more so actually that people are being kept from basic rights unless they get sterilized yeah. kept from their
0: children yeah. also why are you sterilizing
1: children like that's just it's because 500 steps too yeah far. i think it's because of this like eugenics idea of okay you know this yeah. girl is 14 years old before she reaches like puberty or any kind of childbearing age let's sterilize her so that she can't have kids and continue this not ideal bloodline. Wow. That's crazy. I know. I was really shocked by that. Do you know what kind of sterilizations? Like I think it's typically like children's like growth. I think it was the tubal
0: ligations. That's crazy though. Cause I, you know, like if you can't even ovulate, like do you even ovulate still? Like how does that affect
1: your I don't know, body as you grow, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but that's crazy. Yeah, it was was nuts. And I just continue to be surprised, more and more surprised as I like did more and more research. But diving back in, so in the 70s, so many African-American women were sterilized without any medical reason and often with no informed consent because, you know, clearly that's not important. NBD. And even a famous civil rights activist named Fannie Lou Hammer was subjected to a forced hysterectomy after she checked into the hospital for a minor surgery and left without her uterus. That's crazy. They would just like do the hysterectomy like while the patient was under. Yeah, exactly. And because so many women were getting sterilized, um, especially in the Southern United States, they started calling the procedure a Mississippi appendectomy, yeah. Oh. Apparently, even medical students were performing unnecessary hysterectomies on, wow. yeah, on impoverished black women just, just to practice them, just to do it. Oh my god, yeah. me practicing
0: is like looking in an eight-year-old's ear. I know, like, <laughs> not I'm not even looking at a real person. I'm
1: looking in like a fake patient's ear. Their ear is totally normal. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, yeah, not this, not this at all. Continuing, (laughs) though, so we we talked about some indigenous populations. We talked about black women. Um, Additionally, in Puerto Rico, a survey in 1965 of residents there found that one third of all Puerto Rican mothers between 20 and 49 were sterilized. And actually, wow, I know. And actually, a little known part of history is that the first large scale human trial of the pill, like the birth control pill, was conducted mm. in a public housing project in Puerto Rico. Mm. Yeah. So when the guys running the trial, their names were like John Rock and Gregory Pincus. They sound awful. They launched the trials when they launched the trials, the pill had only been tested at that point on rats and rabbits. And then a very small population, a small sample of women at John rocks, like medical practice in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And then that was the only, those were the only people, only animals that had received the pill. And then they took the pill to Puerto Rico and 1500 women took the pill in this public housing project over several years in Puerto Rico. So that just blatant human experimentation.
0: Just no, no consent or anything.
1: No, no, no consent. No, none of that. And Puerto Rican women were being in addition to being in this unintentional clinical trial were also being sterilized permanently. Some not realizing that the procedure was irreversible. I know. So the procedure was simply known as la operacion. And many of the women that received it died, not even knowing that it was done to them. Oh, wow. I know. They just like went their entire lives, not realizing that they were infertile and just thought that they couldn't have kids anymore. Or couldn't have kids at all. That's awful. How was that even incorporated into things? You know, like how? I don't understand how all these things happen. (laughs) I also don't know. I, I think it's oversight on the parts of many organizations that are supposed to be keeping watch and supposed to be helping and making sure that trials like this don't happen and people don't get hurt. But depending on the population that can either be prioritized or not prioritized. Right. Wow. Um, Another place where Latina women were sterilized in large numbers was in California. So doctors were doing these sterilizations and the ones that were doing it would literally label Latinas as delinquents. And because they were quote unquote, hyper fertile, um, their babies were not redeemed as like the non ideal baby. And so it was worth it for them to be sterilized. The doctors were just making these executive decisions that this was fine.
0: What does it even mean for a baby to not be ideal? Like it's
1: just a baby. <laughs> Racism. <laughs> it's just the racist. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just- and in the Supreme Court case, Madrigal versus Quilligan. The L.A. County slash USC Medical Center in the early 70s was found to have personnel systematically coercing Mexican-American women into agreeing to sterilization. Um, Nearly all the women spoke Spanish, but the consent papers were in English. So obviously that went great. Yeah. Yeah. Also, some people who testified in court during this case were also med students, and they said that doctors would literally hold a syringe in front of a mother in labor who was in so much pain and ask if she wanted a painkiller then while the mom was mid contraction like literally mid contraction they would ask if she wanted the drug and then told them to sign the forms and he and the doctor would like make the pain stop damn yeah, yeah. um and med students were like testifying these stories in court for this case mm-hmm. but out of all of this this like long bad history. Um, there was some really wonderful, incredible female role models and activists who came out and were big champions of reproductive rights. So Fannie Lou Hammer, like I mentioned before. Also Mm -hmm. Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, a Puerto Rican woman who was essential in not only advocating for Puerto Rican women, but was also a huge catalyst for change on a larger political and organizational level. So she helped form the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse and also served Mm -hmm. on advisory committees for sterilization guidelines in New York City in particular. And her work essentially helped to prompt national action against sterilization good yeah go her I know she was great so there are some you know amazing people that came out of this and were incredible advocates for reproductive rights however ultimately all of this has been helpful and yet not helpful in many ways and so Mm -hmm. that kind of honestly transitions us into our third part which is For sterilization today. So more recently in California in the mid-1990s, a state law called the Maximum Family Grant Rule was passed, which discouraged mothers from having more children by barring all low-income families enrolled in welfare from receiving increased assistance to take care of additional children. So if you're on welfare, they would de-incentivize you from having kids because they would decrease the amount of assistance that they would give for each consecutive kid that you had. What? That doesn't even make sense. (laughs) You would think that you're not allowed to do something like that, but they did. The only exception to this rule was that if a mother could prove to the state that a child was not conceived intentionally, And so acceptable explanations for this would be, they did say rape, also incest was on there as like a reasonable Mm -hmm. reason, but also just if you had a failure of one of four approved contraceptive methods, which was, they were typically like long acting contraceptive. So it's like, if you were on the shot or if you had an implant or an IUD and then you got pregnant, that was... Acceptable, but if you were using condoms or taking birth control pills, that didn't cut it. Yeah. So
0: if you got pregnant on the pill, which most people who get pregnant on those things are like, what the heck? I did
1: not want this. Like, no, if you got pregnant on the pill, that wasn't an acceptable. Yeah. Another example in a similar vein was actually in 2017 in Tennessee, where a judge signed an order that would essentially decreased jail time for inmates who either got a vasectomy or a long acting contraceptive. Wow. That's insane. That is if I've ever heard I it. know. I was literally said, I literally said, these are straight up coercion tactics right there. Literally like straight out of the ethical don't do. Book. I know. I know. Yeah. Ultimately, the really only kind of reparations type thing that people got who suffered from forced sterilizations was under this act called the Eugenics Compensation Act passed in December 2015, where the U.S. Senate voted unanimously to help surviving victims of forced sterilization. In North Carolina and Virginia, they have been giving twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars to each survivor and wow that's been something that people have been doing but i mean ultimately this is just a bandage on the heinous acts performed by the federal and state governments and ultimately like what can you do to, to right the wrong like not exactly much. exactly you can't give like fertility back you know right you're right. I agree. And it is crazy because like there are still 31 states that don't have any kind of reparations at all. So it's almost like, okay, wow. the 25 dollars to $35,000 like isn't enough to make up for the fact that I am now infertile and mm-hmm. like 31 states have like no kind of reparations at all. So I don't know. God. Yeah. And the thing is, even beyond that, forced sterilization still occur. So this is what you were talking about at the beginning of the episode where you were talking about at the border what happened. Mm-hmm. So just last year at the Irwin County Ice Detention Center in Georgia, it was found that officials who worked there would send immigrant women to a physician who would sterilize the women without informed consent. So nurses would be using Google Translate instead of having proper interpreters. It's a big problem. Like you have to have an interpreter. So bad. Yeah. You really, you need an interpreter always. Even if the provider like speaks like some Spanish, you should still have an interpreter. You have to be like completely fluent for it to even be like remotely okay. And This all just goes to show that even today, medical professionals who are supposed to be caring for people are targeting vulnerable women and coercing them into sterilization. And then of course, it's important to consider as well, like the intersection of gender identity and pregnancy and being inclusive about who can get pregnant. Um, And many states in the U.S., require trans folks to sign a consent to sterilization form in order to have their birth certificates and driver's licenses reflect their gender. Why? I don't know. I don't know.
0: <laughs> That's just like the major, this episode's name should just be forced sterilization. Why? I know. <laughs> like, honestly, why? I know. Like, None of it makes any sense. Like it has no reasoning to back it up. no. Except for being racist or except for being transphobic. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, fully, fully. And yeah, for many trans folks, especially those who are experiencing gender dysphoria, they need a gender affirming surgery to feel like themselves. And so they have Mm -hmm. to agree to be sterilized. And that's just why? Just why? Yeah. Yeah. But. There's lots of different issues surrounding this topic, a lot of history, a lot going on even today. And I actually think that we might be better off just chatting about it together and discussing it more, just diving into it. So that's what I have for now, but I'm ready to talk about it. Okay, me too. What are your initial thoughts? How are you feeling? I know that was really heavy. Thank you for bearing with me. I hope you learned something.
0: Yeah. I learned a lot. I was honestly thinking part way through. I was like, I don't think I've ever felt so shocked throughout an episode. Yeah. Like every little tidbit of a story, it was like, this can't be true. Like this, this just feels so awful. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I've definitely never felt so, like, shocked. I've learned a lot from episodes that I didn't know anything about. But, like, I knew some things about this. And I still was just blown away. And I was also, like, one thing that really struck me the whole episode was just, like, the focus on disability and sterilization Mm -hmm. and, like, actual disabilities. And also, when people thought that women had disabilities, like, they were feeble-minded, so they had to be sterilized. And that, for some reason, was, like, a disability. And things like that. Which is saddening because... Recently, I was like reading about disability rights and advocacy, like a big thing, even today, as people with disabilities like having the right to conceive mm. and like people debating if that's even like disabled people should do. Which the book was written by a disabled woman pointed out, like, how can you debate if I should be allowed to give totally? Birth? Like, what is so wrong with me that like I shouldn't be able to have a child? And it was like a really heartbreaking story she wrote about it and how she would like meet with this professor at like Harvard or something who just like fully believes that disabled individuals should not have children because he doesn't think it's like, right. Mm. Which just reminded, and that's like recent in the last like 10 years. Wow. So she reminded me so strongly of this and like doing the four sterilizations on disabled populations. Um, Cause obviously having disability doesn't make you less of a person. So yeah, I was thinking about that a lot throughout the episode because it came up like time and time again throughout like the whole history. Um, it's just.
1: Taking those rights away from that population of people. Totally. And it's like you making assumptions, not you, but the larger you, like making people. Yeah, making yeah. assumptions about a someone's ability, their character, their intelligence, their ability to be a good mother, a good mm-hmm. caregiver, a good provider, being worthy of doing that too, and worthy of like contributing yeah. to society. It's like, okay, people just assume that certain people are not worth it.
0: Right. Like the world is built for an able-bodied person. So like any position you're in that you're not able-bodied, like the world just looks down on you. And it's just like an example of that. And then the other thing I was thinking about was just like the idea of misinformation, how a lot of the sterilization cases were because of misinformation or because like the patient couldn't read or because they were not taught the right thing. And just it's sad because that's such a big part of being a physician. Like doctor means teacher. You're supposed to yeah. teach your patients like what you're treating them and just like tell them about their diagnosis, about their like treatments. Like you you don't let them leave the room until they know what's going on. And it's just so blatantly like not that at all. And just using like your knowledge to an advantage over a patient, which is just not medicine. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not how you practice correctly. Um, so it's really sad to see I don't know. Like, why are these people doctors? <laughs> like, I know it's just completely against what you spend four years and more half your life learning how to do.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's just the most paternalistic, overly paternalistic approach. It's like, I know what's good for you and I'm going to do it without even asking you, which is such an old way of
0: medicine yeah. too, which I guess like a lot of these stories are in the past, but there are like said like the case, down at the border, like is a recent story and like recent medical thought is putting like the patient in the conversation. So yeah, it's just,
1: there's people out there who still are like that, I guess. Yeah. And actually that whole point ties really well into my first question, which is kind of a basic question, but just what roles do you feel physicians and healthcare providers in general have when it comes to contraception options and the ethics around them you kind of touched on this but if you have any other thoughts yeah I think my biggest thought is just education and like
0: if the person if your is interested in contraceptives then you inform them of every single option possible and like try to recommend the best ones for them but also listen to what they want if they're not interested then they're not interested like you shouldn't have to press like oh you're not interested you know you could get pregnant like maybe you should get on a contraceptive like that's Still like coercing someone into being on a contraceptive and they don't want to be. I've definitely been in clinics where like the patient doesn't want to be a contraceptive. And like before we go in the room, the doctor's like, Oh, I really wish they would be on one, but like she doesn't want to be on one, then like, what am I gonna do about right. it? And then you go in the room, patient's like, nope, I don't want to do it. And the doctor's like, Okay, well, when you when you want to or if you want to, like let us know. We're here to talk about it. And that was like end of conversation, which I thought was great. Like you give them the option if they want in the future, and then you just move on because it's not (laughs) on their mind
1: um yeah
0: yeah so just education and being open to talking about it I think is the physician's role
1: in it yeah I agree with that um and I guess something I have also been thinking about in a similar vein is just more so on the end of what a physician or healthcare provider should be aware of. And we talk about bias all the time, like literally all the time, but just recognizing mm-hmm. like that your patient's race and SES affect a physician's willingness to perform sterilization. This is like a known fact. Mm-hmm. And of course, physicians, as we've seen in history, are more willing to sterilize black women compared to white women and poor women compared to more affluent women. And so mm-hmm. knowing this, but then also something else that ties into what you were saying is like, there's been studies that have shown that physicians and healthcare providers, they typically present long acting contraceptives like LARCs to by POC individuals like more often and using Hmm. long acting contraceptives. Like I said, at the beginning of the episode, if you continue and continue to use that, that's effectively sterilizing this population. And so there's, you know, the unintentional biases that we have of counseling by POC women towards long acting contraceptives, whereas Mm -hmm. one might be more inclined to prescribe the pill to like a white woman. So yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's a thing. And I think it's like useful to be aware of is like, I mean, I'm a big fan of long-acting reversible contraceptives. I think they're great, um, but also- We need to
0: know the risks well. Yeah, you have
1: to understand who, if you can notice yourself choosing one option for different demographics of patients over other options, I think that's a moment of self-reflection and being like, wait. Yeah, exactly. Like take a step back and be like, okay, what outside influences are- on me right now that i need to change also i will throw in there this is interesting um that acog recommends that women are given seven days between the consent process and undergoing the procedure to actually undergo sterilization really so they can like think about it yeah they can think about it they can change their mind and that kind of prevents the issues that have come up time and time again in history which is like a doctor has coerced a patient into signing a form immediately. And then right after that, they're like getting surgery. If there's that seven day buffer, you don't have this option. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Hey, I like you. Oh, they're great. They're really awesome. So yeah, that was interesting. But then my second question is a little bit more involved and it's more relating to current events, but I wanted to talk about, Texas and the recent refusal Mm -hmm. by the Supreme court to block the state's ban on most abortions. This decision is obviously devastating for reproductive rights. And I think it poses an interesting question in the context of forced sterilization, because it almost seems like the opposite in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my question is just how can something like this abortion ban and forced sterilization even exist together? Like what factors make them similar, different, and what aspects of history have been failed to be recognized in allowing both of them to exist? Right, to to answer the obvious question of how
0: they're opposite, like forced sterilization is not having children and abortion ban is making you have a child if you don't want to. So on the surface they're very different, but I do I do think they're similar based on the population they affect the most. Yeah. Um, so forced sterilization, like we've talked about, is for like marginalized women, and abortions are well known to affect marginalized women more because if you're a wealthy woman, then your access to abortion is higher, even if it's illegal, because you have like the backward channels to get it done in a safe way. And if you're a marginalized or like minority woman then you don't have that and you like don't have access to safe abortion and legal abortion. Um, so it's like in a way they're both working against the same community and in different ways, like the end results different, but also it's the same because it's, it's just oppressing those women. More. Yeah, You know, like a, a lot of talk about abortion is if you don't allow women to have abortions and like, it's putting more financial strain on their children they already have, or maybe they just don't want a child. And like that's more stress in their lives and just like more things that keep them at the socioeconomic level that they're at, that maybe they could rise above if they didn't, if they were able to have an abortion. So they're different, but the same in that like they are affecting the same community and kind of have like the end result of not helping the community in any way. It's just like putting more problems on the community instead of, going in with birth control options for like if you're trying to stop people from having abortions and maybe you should provide birth control and sex education like instead of forced sterilizations i don't know just don't do it <laughs> like just talk to
1: the women yeah yeah i agree with what you were saying about uh, of course the communities that are being affected um but then also kind of what you were saying about oppressing the same women. I think something that both forced sterilization and an abortion ban have in common is the removal, the blatant stealing of autonomy from people Mm -hmm. to make their own choices about their reproductive rights. It's like either you want to have a kid or you don't want to have a kid, but in both options, like you don't have a choice, like either you can't because you're now infertile or you have to. Because you cannot get an abortion. It's like the two extremes, literally, the absolute extremes. There's no discussion.
0: And like so much of healthcare is having a discussion between a patient and a provider. And both of these scenarios are like zero discussion, like ultimatum style, basically, which
1: isn't how it works. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think like, especially with the abortion ban, talking about just communities and their communities of color in the health care that they receive. I mean, black women, indigenous women, they have some of the highest maternal mortality rates in the entire nation. Um, and then mm. native women's like, they have so many, they have such high rates of rape, sexual assault. Um, and they again, don't have the monetary means to find a safe abortion outside of Texas. So yeah like those are all factors that come into play with both of those with both. And then um, something else I was thinking about, it's like a very weird train of thought, but I was thinking about how, you know, in Texas, this new abortion ban effectively brings on it, like it almost incentivizes like bounty hunters to report on. It does. Yeah,
0: it literally does. And, like,
1: yeah. So it, incentivizes people to rat out people who are doing abortions um but then i was thinking about those practitioners who are like carrying out abortions and then other practitioners who are doing forced sterilizations and it's like well shouldn't these if that's the case with like an abortion ban then shouldn't it be the same for people who are doing forced sterilizations and like do we even want that precedent to exist of this such a critical like like almost like a 1984 big brother-esque energy of us literally like telling on each each other other. yeah um and so I was thinking about that too and I was like I don't really know where this thought is going but this is this is hectic this is crazy
0: yeah the whole like telling people even like the people who drive people to abortions get in trouble now like I don't know if you saw Lyft put out a statement. That they will cover any legal fees that may come up from any driver that unknowingly like drove someone mm. to an abortion, because they're like, as a Lyft driver, like you should be secure in your job, and so they put a statement they'll cover like any legal fees from Texas. Basically, oh, that's good. That was really. I great did not know that. That's supportive. really good. Um, drivers, yeah. Um, but yeah, like tattletaling. Come on, I, <laughs> I know, I know. And why can't we tattletale on the right thing? I know. Like, for sterilization. Yeah. Like all oh, this doctor is like not doing informed consent and not
1: doing this. Like maybe we should let people know. Yeah. I left this episode, writing this episode, even more confused than when I went into it. Because I was like, okay, I'm going mm-hmm. to approach this in this methodical way. I'm going to think about each of these parts and dissect them. And ultimately in the end, it's obviously the most detailed like intense topics that leave you the most almost like shell-shocked in a way yeah and so well because it doesn't make sense like yeah like the whole idea I mean the whole concept is rooted in a false idea like a false way of thinking which is eugenics and and so I guess my like my Mm -hmm. question at the end is like oh how have what have we failed to take away from history and I think it's the idea that history is flawed in itself. And like, we're not thinking critically about our own history. And so we just like perpetuate these like negative thoughts. Right.
0: I mean, it's the same thing with how we overlooked how Margaret Sanger was a supporter of eugenics. Like that, that's not the popular right. opinion of her that's out in the world. Like, what people are taught about history isn't always the part that needs to be changed. Like we're taught the things that people deemed were good and not things that benefited the like major population and the white population without really talking about the other things. And I think like the whole, our oversight is the example of the same thing, you know, like we do research a lot for these episodes so in some things like overlooked, it's like, okay, that obviously was not a very big part of information that was in sources available to the public, right. which is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah. Sometimes um, I, when I research these episodes, I don't know what you do, but I literally have to like go down really intense rabbit holes to find the stories that I'm not getting on the like main websites. Like I literally have to Google yeah, the most absurd I usually look things. for like
0: scientific, <laughs> I look for like scientific articles usually. Yeah. And then try to like lead me from there. But I feel like for some things, like unless you directly search, you know, eugenics, you're not going to find out who was a supporter just by like knowing about Theodore Roosevelt. You know, like I bet if you look up a biography of him, it doesn't stay in there. Yeah,
1: that he was a eugenicist.
0: Yeah. Right. But if you like look up eugenics and you do, so it's like the avenues of what you're searching for information. Which
1: is why having... For example, a feminist approach or having some kind of like critical (laughs) appraisal of history is important and something that we try to do, obviously. Well, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more, um, just remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and review. Um, Apple Podcasts is the best place to leave a rating and review, but you can subscribe on any podcasting app.
0: Yeah, you can also follow us on social media. Um, As we talked about in the beginning, it's usually at From Skirts to Scrubs for Facebook, um, Instagram, TikTok, all those things. Also a Twitter, which is at F. F-S-T-S underscore podcast. You can also check out our website, which is from scrubsclubs.com for our show notes and sources and merch and more information.
1: Yeah. And as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, you should shoot us an email or Insta DM or, pod or Twitter
0: message, whatever it is. <laughs> all the messaging. And lastly, here's to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay. All right, guys. Bye. See you next time. Bye.